What's up? This is Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Today I'm joined by... Hey, it's Amy Rose Spiegel, Talk House Music's Editor-in-Chief. And we have a very cool show for you today. Ockerville River's Will Chef in conversation with new pornographers A.C. Newman. This talk was recorded to celebrate Ockerville River's new record, In the Rainbow Rain, which dropped late last month on ATO Records. We're releasing this episode in partnership with Manhattan's iconic The Strand Bookstore. This talk took place in their amazing rare book room. Will Chef is the leader of Ockerville River, a band which formed in Austin, Texas 20 years ago this year. How has it been 20 years? I have no idea. Elliot, you've played with them though, right? Our bands played together back in the aughts. I've watched them from side stage. They are fantastic performers. Hint, stay tuned after this talk, listeners. Yeah, there's been a rotating cast of musicians around Will, most notably Jonathan Myberg, who famously went on to form Shearwater with Will. Right, Jonathan wanted to perform his own songs, so the guys just started another band. Now, Ockerville River has gone on to release, whether on their own or in collaboration, a dozen LPs. As you mentioned, In the Rainbow Rain just dropped. It's their fantastic new joint. Check out my favorite track from it. This is Famous Tracheotomies, a song that comes up quite a bit in this talk. Gary Coleman, he was all on TV. Well, I grew up watching him and Conrad Bain and Kimberly. Turns out that he had a trick scar too. Well, they cut into his throat and then they threaded that tube through. That was much later on in the year that he turned 40 when his family's was all gone. That's an awesome track. Right? Intelligent and weird. Totally. And speaking of intelligent and weird, we also have A.C. Newman in this chat. He's the center of the indie power pop collective, The New Pornographers. Right. This is a band that's been around almost as long as Ockerville River. I remember seeing them at the Metro in Chicago in the early aughts. An absolutely amazing band. And it's called The Collective because there's different people coming in and out. And it's birthed a number of stars. Nico Case, Dan Behar, a.k.a. Destroyer, and A.C. Newman himself, who's released a trio of fantastic solo records. His most recent record was with New Pornographers, last year's White Out Conditions. Do you want to check out that record's title track? Let's do it. So awesome. So good. So Will and AC are friends, collaborators, and as of recently, neighbors up in Woodstock, New York. I did not know this, Amy Rose. Evidently, the guys have moved with their families up to a, a nice-sized plot of land and are living in cabins upstate. Let me move in. <laughs> I will join that cult. <laughs> So this talk gives deep insight into the writing and structuring of In the Rainbow Rain. Right. And, and you know, it's been a big year for Will leading up to this release. He has made some big life changes. He started attending Quaker meetings. He spent a ton of time going to therapy. He also started microdosing psychedelics. Yo, I love it. Like, explore everything. That's Take very every cool. route. Take yeah, every route. totally. And that exploration 
bore the fruit that we hear in this chat. We hear all about why Will had to get the hell out of his home state. And then just before this record, why he had to get the hell out of New York City. We also hear about Bob Dylan and Van Morrison and Proust and Sappho and the absolute God, William Blake. Right. The guy is really chopping up about a lot of things. They also get into the joys and drawbacks of living in the political bubble. They talk about the magic of what AC calls the nerd store. <laughs> they talk about why the gig after New York City always sucks. We go into predestination versus free will. And we also hear about what Will preemptively apologizes to each new Ockerville River member for. You want to roll the tape? Let's do it. Sweet. We should, we should just talk until it feels natural. Yeah, yeah, until we, it we feels talked natural. about just talking and just saying things. <laughs> talking until it feels natural. Carl is basically the path of least resistance for this interview because they were saying, oh, somebody, who do you want to do the interview? And Carl is currently my landlord, essentially. I'm, I'm, I'm not his landlord. Well, but, um, but we do, we should talk about uh, our connection, um, which we haven't actually rehearsed. And um, I hope that we're going to remember because I honestly am not sure. Do you remember when we first met each other? I, I feel like I remember, but I, I can't quite, I'm not sure I if it's it the first I think it was in time. Den Haag. Mm. Yeah. And I think I just walked up to you because I'm just very, well, somebody had a very said, pleasant person. And I walk up to people and say hello. Carl is, um, in fact, a very pleasant person. And I remember um, saying afterwards to somebody, it's just like the bullshit factor, the lead singer, frontman, ego, bullshit factor that you get used to with musicians uh, is not there in Carl. You know, like the shitty two egos grappling like stags in a nature documentary so thing. Let's, so let's talk about who does have that bullshit lead singer. <laughs> We've been waiting a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is where we have to keep ourselves hidden, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we, we, we can't talk like we do when we're just hanging out. No, no. So you're getting a different, you're getting the, uh, the, the gloves are, are on. You're getting them, but not the no holds barred version. But you know, the one thing, I don't think I told you this, but the one thing I remember about when we toured together, because I really like the stage names, and, and I was amazed you guys agreed to do it. And I remember seeing you the first night and just being like so bummed out. Like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> we have to do this for the next two, three weeks. We have to follow them. And, and for two days, I was legitimately bummed out. And oh I, thought, no, like, we, I thought, you'll get through this. <laughs> you know, we liked each other, so that helped. That was a really, really fun tour. I want to say that was the first tour we ever did with a bus. Um, so it felt really rock star, you know, like we mm -hmm. were touring with you guys and we were in a bus and I, we were just, we'd been on tour for so long that your body is just playing the songs without you even trying to. You're just like, oh, wow, <laughs> I appear to be playing a set. Yeah, that's, <laughs> exactly. So that part of it was really, really nice. I mean, that was like uh, t definitely, I would say, the most fun tour. Probably the most fun tour I've done, but if... If that's not true, it was definitely the most fun I've had with another band on tour. That was, yeah. I think that's that's the coolest part about being in a band for me. You know, mm -hmm. you just you get you make friends along the way, and your rock and roll community. That's the best part about like 
festivals to me too is that you're like it's not even seeing the shows but it's like wandering around backstage and running into people that yeah, you haven't yeah, seen you see in a really really friends. long time like hey spoon how's it going yeah <laughs> it's been a while yeah hey yeah. common and there's this sense of yeah there's i don't know there's this sense of um a world that other musicians can relate to that you know you you've kind of have been all these sort of like ups and downs and and common history that you've had and you you know they've had the same shitty experiences mm -hmm. and you know they've had the same really exciting experiences that just feels really warm and fuzzy somehow when you're running into yeah, your friends it's like our church yeah we have the, yeah absolutely absolutely they all feel the same pain but yeah so that we met then and then continued to work together well i mean i sang on um together yeah yeah and right. you sang on wake and be fine when we performed on jimmy fallon that's right which i had forgotten all about by the way until you mentioned it which when was we were singing backstage yeah it's, yeah we were it's funny we were just i was i was talking about it at least yeah you meant how it. terrifying it is to be on tv yeah and uh if you guys know wake and be fine it has many lyrics yeah and <laughs> I had to sing, like, I think about two-thirds of it. Mm -hmm. And I tried so hard. Like, I was backstage for, like, an hour remember, just singing yeah. it. And I still couldn't do it. I still needed a cheat sheet. Yeah, I remember I remember that really, really well. The thing, we were saying this thing. It's like, God, it's like <laughs> a rule about life. You remember how disappointed you were? Well, no, I remember that you were freaked out by the lyrics. And I always feel guilty about that. And anytime <laughs> anybody in um, joins my band... And I'm like, they're like, oh my God, there's a lot of lyrics. I'm always just like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry. And they're like, there's really no set form to this either. It's, you know, you kind of like. Yeah, the phrasing is really <laughs> weird. I can't remember it now, but some of those songs. Are I do think subliminally I am trying to torture people sometimes. <laughs> um, it's like I'm working out childhood aggressions. Just on the off on chance. Band members. <laughs> just on the off chance that somebody you hate has to sing it. Yeah, just make it difficult. Yeah. And finally, you got the chance. Yeah. Me. I think it's actually culminated in the fact that we are actually now um, living. We are, are actually living in the cottage on Carl's property now. So I, all I had to do was walk across the lawn to, to ask you whether or not you would yeah, <laughs> be interested well, in doing it. Because, you know, like, like a lot of people, everybody's trying to escape New York, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, know, yeah. Like, you know, like Joan Didion. You're like, goodbye to all that. And, uh, Sometimes you can stay too long at the party. Yes. And my wife and I just really wanted Will and Beth to come up to Woodstock. So we said, well, we've got this cottage, which sounds fancier than it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like it's not a big deal to have a cottage in Woodstock. It's not like, you know, it's next to our stables or anything. Yeah. It's just a. Yeah. Yeah. You go to. Um, it's just the, the dignity of not being in New York. You know, this thing mm -hmm. of like, oh my God, like I don't have to like be rude and shitty to people around me just to get through my day. <laughs> it's <You know>? true. <laughs> and also my son, my six-year-old son absolutely adores Will. Oh, yeah. Which is, which is pretty awesome. Like uh, they have a day at school where it's like grandparents' day or special person's day. And he we was like, so who do you want? To Will. Yeah. He's like, it's good, but Will's on tour. I know, I know. So he cried. He, he's still crying. You know that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's the first thing in his life that I think taught him about disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good lesson. Thank you for teaching him that. You know, you don't always get what you want. Yeah, yeah, I am to disappoint. Sometimes you get hurt by people. <laughs> people that love you. People that you love. 
But no. <laughs> but no, it's funny. We we have had to deal with some like actual kind of landlord bullshit in the last yeah. day. Like yeah. Oh my god. It's, it's not that gross, but it's sort of gross. Yeah. It's just a leaky pipe. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I don't know, just getting out of New York City, which was like something that is actually really really weirdly hard to do. You know, I think that bringing it into the record it was like when I wrote that song Don't Move Back to LA, it was like that was because some other friends of ours had moved out had kind of in a big domino effect all moved out of um, of New York at the same time and gone to LA. And it felt like a personal betrayal. It was like, why <laughs> why are you leaving me here? You know, with like very little announcement in advance. You're just suddenly going away. And now I have to be here all alone. And I was just like, oh, don't move back to LA. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I feel this is so painful. And I bet if I just sing a song Right now, <laughs> it just it slowly morphed into song. singing. You just kept saying it until it became a yeah, song. Yeah, I mean, and the song started out as like, I was like, all I really need to do is just sing the words Don't Move Back to LA for five minutes. And it would probably be like a pretty good song. Mm-hmm. And then I have to put some other stuff in too. But secretly, I think what I was doing was also kind of saying to myself, because that's the, the narrator of that song is more like, no, just join me in the shitty hell that is New York. Mm-hmm. You know, like, don't. Don't make your life better be in the bad life. Do you think there's some is there some bigger m- metaphor like, you know, like New York and LA? Like they 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 represent such Well, I mean, part of what I was experiencing things. is as a kid who comes from New Hampshire, um there's this thing where I grew up in New Hampshire and I I was not not a fun place for a young person, but it's also beautiful. And I knew when I was a kid, I was like, I want to get out. I want to, um, I got to get out. But I also wasn't like, I don't ever want to come back. This place is terrible. I, I, I had a vision of coming back. But the thing is, in order for it to be a place where like young people can be or artists can be, like somebody's got to start moving back. Some people who are young have got, and you know, I, as a person in a small town, I remember this like New Yorker article that I read last year about this where they were talking about, you know, what happens in the towns where people leave or where people don't leave. And, and, and it gets into sort of the political where there becomes this sort of brain drain and there's these really beautiful places where all of the young people and all the energetic people left. And there's a sense of like, well, you know, we want the young people to go spread their wings and fly. But now that they've gone away, our town is sort of like drained of its vitality and, and I think that's sort of how those things fall prey to, to ignorance and anger and Fox News and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at New Hampshire specifically because I look at New Hampshire specifically because New Hampshire hasn't been very friendly to the arts or anything like that. They've had a really sort of like libertarian, like, you know, we're not going to give you anything extra kind of attitude, which is part of the reason why Vermont is so much more exciting seeming to people. <laughs> um, and so I think on some level that song is kind of about like, gosh, like if you stayed in your town and made it cooler, the whole country would be cooler. But I'm also aware that that's kind of like a naive philosophy. But I think maybe that's a little bit of what's in that song too. But that, yeah, it's the cost of leaving. Yeah. That brings up something we, we were uh, talking about. Uh, like, do you think you had any choice? Like, did you think, like, do you think you had to leave New Hampshire or, you know, did, did your destiny as a musician, you know, preclude 
any free will. <laughs> Carl told me before he did this interview that he was going to ask me about predestination <laughs> versus free will. And I, well, I, I think, thought it was a joke. <laughs> um, I think it's a legit question. <laughs> um, I... I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. My town, my whole state is in the news once every four years when people cast, when there's like primaries and people cast the first vote there. And otherwise people don't really ever think about it. And um, I remember like going to college in um, St. Paul, Minnesota. And in the first week there was some weird shooting or something that happened. But I just remember being so startled that a place I lived in was in the newspaper. Um, it's really, really funny to me how much when I remember my childhood, it seems like I was on an island of made out of trees and dirt and somewhere out there in theory, there was a world that was where people did things. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy to me that I ended up being a small part of that world, you know, that, that people wrote about me and talked about me because I felt so much like I was just a speck of dust. Um, so, but you think you could have stayed there? And just, well, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing because some of my friends who stayed there, it didn't go really super well for them. You know, I mean, I, I've, there were, I remember having friends where I was like, you're not going to leave and I feel like I can see your whole future you know, in that, and mm -hmm. that is, it was really sad, you know what I mean, in a way, because, um, I don't know, yeah, I think that you have to go, I mean, so it's kind of, that's why I say it's like, I know it's a fantasy, it's like, sometimes people have to get the hell out of where, you know, you go on tour sometimes, and, in, in, like, you'll play, like, Rapid City or Spearfish, and these really amazing kids will come up to you, and they'll be like, oh my god, you're my favorite band, some 18-year-old kid, and they're giving you a hug, I love you so much. And you're like, thank you. Get out of this town. <laughs> go go yeah. very far away from here. <laughs> I know it's, it's such a common thing, the people who apologize for their city. Yeah. It's like, I'm so sorry about <laughs> But not here. That's why you come here. Yeah, I was in Dallas and it was a really weird show. And I was talking to a friend there about how I don't think any band has ever had a non-weird show in Dallas. And he said, people in Dallas just don't know how to listen to music. <laughs> you know, and it was like, but he said it like, like he wasn't joke. Like he was just like, yeah, like almost like it was like, you're just saying, well, it's really humid here. You know what I mean? It was sort of like mm -hmm. that. But anyway. No. But you also realize you can't, it's hard to give a city a personality, you know? Like you're like, saying like, it's sort of like an invented thing. Like some you, level. you think a city is like this freewheeling city where everybody loves you. And then you come back two years later and realize, no, they've changed. Because <laughs> Yeah, because it's a different group of people, and why wouldn't they change? Yeah, Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that for some reason happened to me. But, it's, but it's something do, bad happened in Portland. No, but that happened with our audience, where it was like some they cooled. You know, like it was weird. I mean, there's still, but like, or or there's like places where it was like we were never we would go to the, and play for nobody, and then suddenly we we're suddenly popular there again. And this is something I always wonder about because I'm sure that you have, you know, your cities that you play where you do really, really well and your cities that you play where you do really, really poorly. And so not really, really poorly, but like not as well. And so I... Oh, there, there are some really, really poor ones. Yeah. Yes. So I, I always think, I'll say to people, oh, well, you know, 
you can't have a good show in like what this or that town or like it's amazing if you go to Chicago it's you're amazing and I think no this is about a certain group subset of the people in this town mm-hmm. at that particular moment in their lives you know it, who care about my band you know what mm-hmm. I mean it's just like a sort of a I, I just make these assumptions that I know. So about what places. what town was the hardest nut to crack? What was the town that you felt like didn't like you initially, but then they came Portland. to love you? Portland. Portland, yeah, yeah. We used to go play Portland, um, and always play for nobody, and always get a chilly reception. And then suddenly, we went and we played this pizza parlor, and everybody <laughs> loved us, but it was small. And then we came back, and. Every time we played in Portland, there would be people like hanging from the ceiling, screaming so loud that you felt like you were your eardrums <laughs> were going to explode. And then like one day we came back and it was like suddenly there weren't that many people anymore, and people were just kind of like, oh, "It's pretty good." I was so, like, "Where did all the people <laughs> that loved us so go?" They, wow, so you've been through a full three sixty with yeah, Portland. Yeah, but now we're like now things are like. Portland is like likes us again, but for <laughs> was, a while there, I was going to ask you which city turned on you, but it was Portland. Yeah, it's Portland, all. Portland. I have like complicated feelings about Portland. <laughs> it's yeah. a fascinating city. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but anyway, um, what's that for you? What's like your uh, what's a tough nut to crack? You know, a legendary s- city is San Diego. Oh yeah, like I remember playing there many times, and when you finally have a good show. In San Diego, that's when you think we've got something here. <laughs> <laughs> like I think we're going to be popular. <laughs> there are sixty people here. Yeah, yeah. In San Diego. <laughs> yeah, San Diego's. There. They're clapping. The other thing that we talked about is um, I always feel bad for whatever market comes after New York City on the tour because it's always the same thing where it's like. The band comes to town. They go to a bar. The bar closes the doors. They're drinking until 6 a.m. Somebody breaks out some shitty cocaine. They get in at like 10 a.m. to their wherever they're staying, and then they like go to the next day. They go to like Baltimore or Philly or D.C. and they're just like, (laughs) we've had the same experience because like. Well, that exact experience. And if you're on tour with somebody and you see them the next day and you're like, oh man, he looks rough, you know? But it's a weird thing when you, you know, we both moved to New York Mm -hmm. and when you start here, it just ruins you. (laughs) Like, 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 like all of a sudden that night is gone. Mm -hmm. Like all all of a sudden that night where you would party till 6am in New York is, well, I'm going to go back to my apartment. You guys, uh. Yeah. You guys just do whatever you're going to do. I'm just going to go <laughs> pet my dog or something. <laughs> and then you go to all the other cities and you go, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Chicago's, is, Chicago's nice. Yeah. <laughs> San Francisco's cool, I guess. I live in fucking New York. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean. But um, then you have to get the hell out. I, I had to get the hell out because it was more personal for me. Um, some people draw energy from New York and it makes them alive and they're really, really excited about it. And like, that is amazing and they should be, be here. Um, for me, I always just felt like I was getting the life sucked out of me. But, but not because, that's because of who I am. You know what I mean? It's like the way that I'm wired. Um, I felt like New York was making demands on me that I, 
I, it's just like so hard to do the simplest thing, you know, just like <laughs> to wake up and get your guitar somewhere by a time and then be, so, you know, even today, like getting this thing, it's just so, so hard. And, and I would leave town because I was writing a lot upstate, you know, like I have places that I w- have been able to go and, and do writing and really, really focus on writing. And I remember um, <clears throat> there's like a Proust quote that I remember reading where he's saying, you know, the voice that gives you inspiration, it's like a tiny, tiny, tiny whisper. And so if you're not paying attention or if you sort of think, yeah, I'll remember that later or whatever, you won't, you know, you will miss that little tiny whisper. That's certainly true for me. Maybe for other people, it's a big bullhorn, but not for me. It's a tiny little whisper. And so I would go out of town and I would hunker down and I would write. And, you know, my whole life was just like writing and cooking and like taking a walk. Um, and it was like healing and regenerative and beautiful. And then I would come back into New York and before I had even gotten out of my car, somebody had like flipped me off or (laughs) spit on my car or like almost hit me in their car. You know, it was just like this thing of like New York immediately tells you like, I hate you, (laughs) you know, like immediately upon showing up. And I'm just overly sensitive. And some people are just like, whatever, who cares? But the other side of it is like, I was just next door Uh on the Forbidden Planet. And you go in there and there's like, like men and women, every age, like all races. And they're all just buying like, Doom Patrol comics or like <laughs> buying really action cool. figures. And I was like, oh, I love this place. Yeah. Like where yeah. else where else would you have this? Yes. Yeah, no, that's like that's, it's it's kind of one of my favorite places in New York because I you walk around and I think, I didn't know this existed. This yes. doesn't exist anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, that's the beautiful draw of cities, you know, coming back to the New York, LA media big centers of places is that, and in Austin, Austin was like that in Texas, where it was like everybody who was not a good old boy basically goes to Austin and it's a beautiful thing. But then some, sometimes you're like, well, God, if they stayed and they were like, no, fuck you. This is my town too. <laughs> then maybe it would be cool, but maybe and, not. I don't know. And then on the other side of it, my wife, when I was in the, the nerd store, uh, I was talking to my wife on the phone and she was at a birthday party upstate. And she said, this place is so Trumpy. It's <laughs> like, she said that it was a kid's birthday party and there were people with the red maggot hats Oh, and I realized, God. like, oh, yeah, like, you know, Woodstock is nice. You know, it's a nice bubble in the bubble. But yeah, you're surrounded yeah. by... So we can't... We're just fucked. We can't... Yeah. It's a, we, we, you can't get away from it. Life comes after you. Yeah. You well, that's are. why I feel like it's important personally. Well, I mean, I, I, it seems to me like it would be good to be integrated with people like that so that you could at least be like showing i don't know so you could at least be showing people that they're not i don't know it seems like the bubble model is not working i guess is maybe more what i'd want to say yeah should we switch gears or something yeah let's switch gears let's switch gears not a lot of people know this but will made a record called love streams yeah um just under the name love streams and it was only recently that i realized it never came out yeah, and then, yeah. and like I thought of it as an album that people knew, and had been released, but it hadn't been. And there's a connection. Mm, like, yeah, I mean, not a, a sli- more of a vague connection, but well, the an early version of famous tracheotomies was on that. But but um, what's really interesting about love streams? Gosh, I don't even know how germane this is to the discussion, but it, it actually it feels very sort of related to the spirit of it. Um, 
in 2011 or earlier, I can't remember, but I started making this record that was like drum machines and, and synths and no acoustic anything and was sort of um, my crash course in teaching myself how to record. But it was also kind of like attempting to come up with a different style of writing. And it never came out for a lot of really complicated reasons. It started out as something I was just making for myself. And then it had a couple of different botched rollout things that, where it didn't come out. Um, but it's weirdly been this w sort of mulch for all of the other records that I did afterwards. I mean, the Silver Gymnasium was like an attempt to sort of integrate some of what I'd learned from that style of writing and some of the instrumentation into Ockerville River. And right after I did Away, I worked on it more. It's kind of like something that I'll, every now and then I'll like work on it more. And even though it's already mastered it's, now. It's just like the car in your garage. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like the 68 Mustang you're tinkering on <laughs> yeah. in your garage. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I've mastered it several times too, which is ridiculous. But, um, but in any case, even after Away, which was this like totally acoustic based record, I went right back in and continued to make all of this super synthy stuff for that record again. And I think maybe in the Rainbow Rain represents... Yeah, I think it comes out in this record. Yeah, definitely. I think it represents a sort of a, um, the spirit of Love Streams like actually yeah. finally like embodying itself in Aquaville River. That's the thing. Like I think I see the connection there, but I don't know nobody else would because they haven't heard the record. Yeah. And you would see the connection because you've also heard the record. Yeah. It's a weird thing, having a thing that's like your weird secret... It's your basement tapes. Yeah. That, like, it's, it's, that a, never... it's a classic move to have... a. The lost record, so people can discover it. Yeah, but that came out after a while eventually. <laughs> what, you think this won't? <laughs> yeah, maybe at some point. Maybe you might have to point. die. I'll put it uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it usually But yes, goes. but it sounds like that to you, right? It feels like it's like that. It feels like it comes out of that spirit or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. It was you, a here's a question about me for you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like the record sounds... How do you feel like it's related to Wait. Away? Does it feel really different? <laughs> Wait, you're not supposed to ask me I know, these but I'm asking you because I feel like I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if it is. Yeah, I, I see the connection between this record and Love Streams, but Away just seemed like more of your, your astral weeks or something yeah, like that. Yeah. To me, they feel really similar. I guess that's why I asked you that. But like when I listen to them, they don't sound similar. But it's like they... We have no perspective on yeah. things we do. No, I know, I know, I know. And I have no perspective on things you do. So I was yeah. a bad person to choose to <laughs> interview sorry. you. Sorry. Um, I just love you too much. Too, you're too <laughs> close to me. Well, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> What's funny about, the, about In the Rainbow Rain was that it was the exact same workflow. I mean, we made it the same way as we made Away. But the only difference was... I, Away was like me alone hiring a bunch of strangers to play on my record and feeling very free. People describe that record as sounding sad, but to me it sounds like I'm just sort of free to do what I want, to exist in a world that, where maybe the other stuff doesn't even have to have existed. And then all those people that I were just strangers that I hired, they became like my band and we went on the road and we were like, well, we can't bring all of this acoustic stuff, so let's just bring like more electric stuff. And then suddenly it was so fun to play with people and we were having such a good time and everybody was so happy that the music became happier and the music was more electric. And I just thought, let's just record 
this feeling right, right away immediately. And I booked a date. And then the election happened right before the recording session. Well, like two weeks before. And, and like, you know, I got off tour and there were two weeks. And so I felt this weird feeling of feeling so happy and grounded and satisfied in my life, but also feeling like so terrified about the larger world. So there was this sense of trying to write something that was like strong, uh, strengthening and uplifting that people could kind of carry with them and that would make them feel happy. But we went in and we did the record the same way as a way. So I, I feel like it's really just, I've come to this thing of like, if you're happy and you're walking down the street, you'll walk down the street in a happy way. Or if you're happy mm. and you're like juggling or whatever, you'll, I guess it can't juggle in a sad way, but you can also, maybe you can. You can tell that you became very much a band mm -hmm. on the record. Like, yeah. like, like you said, you know, a, a way it was, you know, going back to Astral Weeks, it's like Van Morrison just brought in guys who didn't know the songs and they were just hot shit players and they made this great record. And this one, like, I hesitate to use the term 70s, but it feels 70s not in that it, it like touches on any tropes or cliches. It just has that vibe where like bands were just really good in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was a time where bands were good and players were amazing and the technology was great, but computers hadn't come in yet. Not to, which I like computers, um, but there's a tendency, it's really, really easy to give your song like a facelift or like airbrush it. I mean, it's hard not to. The tools are so there and so easy that it's like you're kind of shunted into fixing things that weren't mistakes. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's a, a, something I, I try hard to avoid. But also I was thinking about, you know, what are the things that are going to, I wanted to make a record that felt uplifting and that made people feel not alone and that made people feel not ashamed and things like that. And I was thinking what are the things that make me feel that way? And for me, I guess that is like soul music and like AM radio rock from the 70s. Yeah. And if I hear like a, a Rhodes, it just makes me feel like a warm pat on the back or something, you know? Yeah, like, I don't know. Have you guys all heard the record? <laughs> uh, I guess they're we're, streaming we're, on NPR. We're, we're in 2018. Just, Hasn't everybody heard they're it already? All, they're all owners of the record. Yeah, now, Sh so. Shelter Song really struck me as... That's like as, my favorite one on there, I think. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's my so, favorite recording on there. So here's a question. Why did you put it at song seven or song eight? <laughs> well, because I sequenced the record so that you get... Famous tracheotomies is like um, is like sort of like a run through of a lot of the themes on the record, and it also feels like it belongs first. And I feel like the dream and the light is like coughing up a big hairball, where it's a sort mm -hmm. of like the repository for all the the sense of betrayal and anger and pain and confusion on the record. And there's a certain sense of like reaching out for something, and then the record kind of goes more and more like it's getting lighter as it's going, you know, like, in fact, there's, it, it, there's fewer words, you know, for the first time in, in ever, I was thinking I will really want to challenge myself to write songs with like a song with like 40 words that are all one syllable. And they're just things that you find around the house, you know, mm -hmm. and, but, and that comes in in the second half. So you get these, pretty verbose songs in the first three. Is that Pull then, Up the Ribbons? Was that one of those? Pull Up the Ribbon is, yeah, that's definitely very, very simple language. Um, 
So I, I definitely, you know, I feel like you're shedding weight as it's going. And Shelter Song feels like it's, it's getting at a place of forgiving yourself to, to a certain extent. And so it feel, felt like it was better in the second half. So you talk about the narrative arc, yeah. all these narrative arcs, and you mentioned Proust, and we're in the rare book room. So, I mean, like, and people have talked to you and called you the hyper-literate yeah. songwriter. I mean, like, do you like that or does it bug you? Well, I, I've thought about it a whole lot. And I guess I like that anybody ever said anything nice about me. I think, <laughs> I think that maybe sometimes it's a barrier if you, if you think, oh, this is just going to be like a smarty pants guy. But I guess the thing that if I were to say it bugs me, it makes me feel ungrateful to say that it bugs me. But sometimes people will say, uh, well, your song, your, the lyrics are so good, it's like poetry or it's like a short story or something. And which was really, really nice to say. But um, I guess that what makes me sad about it is that it feels like there's an imp- implication that when something is better than a song, it's a poem. And I, I feel like... What? I feel, don't you feel like people say you're... If they, I don't get that at all. You think they think... You what? Think, Wait, say that again? If like you're... Okay, so it's like a superlative. Like it's so good, it's poetry as opposed to like it's a great song. <laughs> wow, you're really reading deep into that. <laughs> well, so... <laughs> and but, you I take mean, that as an insult somehow? This is what I feel. And it goes back to the thing that we were talking about with knowing other musicians and loving other musicians. I feel like song shouldn't be second fiddle to other arts. I feel like it's the first art. I think, you know, you could say song or, or cave painting, but like you need something to write on the wall of a cave and you, you just need mm-hmm. your voice to make a song. So it feels to me like song birthed poems and birthed the novel and birthed all of these things. So to me, I feel like it's not like slumming to be a writer. I feel like a songwriter. I feel like it's like this really, really amazing Art form. I feel like you see this prejudice even in writers like, which I recently found out that I didn't know that like William Blake was writing his stuff as songs, like songs of experience, songs of innocence. He literally was singing those songs. They all had melodies and you'd go over to his house and he would sing you the songs and then he would write the lyrics down in the book. And I also didn't know like Sappho was a songwriter. She accompanied herself on Lyre and she was like a singer songwriter. And I feel like it says something about our culture that we sort of, granted, you know, stuff gets lost to time, but the fact that we kind of like carved the music away and we're just like, no, no, it's, it's serious. So like, it's, it's like writing. It's not like, it's not like but, songs. But on the upside, you can get super famous and rich writing songs, but not so much <laughs> writing poetry. Yeah. So who cares if you're more respected <laughs> as a poet? Yeah. No, I don't want to be a poet. I just feel like there's something about song that's really, really primal and, and, and gorgeous and glorious. And it was like driving from Woodstock to the pulled up the ribbon video shoot. And it was, I don't leave really, really, really early. And there was a guy riding his bike at like 5 a.m. in the total dark coming towards me, this one headlight, and I was really freaked out. But then I was just sitting there after he passed, I was listening to music and I was just thinking, what is it about music? I don't even understand why we want, why we need it so much, like vibrations in the air and with somebody singing, but there's like a thing in it that feels so meaningful and deep and touches something so deep and icky and, and like central to who I am and not who I am, but like just being an animal in a body with a brain, you know, like it feels really 
like it's hitting the deepest part of me and there's some spirit behind it that I don't even understand. Yeah, you didn't have a choice. But what, pardon? You, <laughs> you didn't have a choice. Yeah. You, oh, you're bringing it back to predestination. Yes. <laughs> but I was just thinking, I just like want to be a part of this. Like I'm honored that I got to be a part of it. You know, like even if it's in a footnote way in the grand sweep or something, I just like, I'm so glad I got to like sit at that like little table for a second with, you know, with, with the other people. You know mm. what I mean? I don't know. I like, it makes me really happy to think about well, it's, it's like I said, you know, like a, you made your mark. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares what happens next? You know, yeah, you left your yeah. mark on it's, the world. This is something that I'm, I'm you, a, it's a quote from somebody yeah. else, but I don't want to name. But you've drop. told me this f- several times now because we're we stay up and and you know talk about. There's a lot to talk about because we've been around. We've both been in bands for a really long time and experienced a lot of the same things and um, frustrations and exaltations and things and overthinking and I'm more overthinking than you I think I think you're more um at peace with <laughs> things some things than I am sometimes I think I just keep it hidden maybe <laughs> I just scream into my pillow <laughs> whereas you talk about it yeah yeah that might be that might be the case <laughs> um I'm not don't actually do that okay <laughs> well are we winding down is there anything more that you I don't know. what what else is there I don't really know what? Does that mean you should play some songs? Yeah, yeah, I'll play some songs. I think I'll we did it. We, we've done this enough. <laughs> All right. Gentlemen, thank you so much for overthinking your lives here on the Talk House podcast for all of us to hear. Totally. If you like today's talk, you might also love our upcoming Natalie Prass and Matthew E. White event at The Strand. We're actually giving away tickets on our socials if you want to join us in New York. Check it out. Across platforms, we are at TalkHouse. I also want to give a big shout out to one of my favorite podcasts, Song Exploder. The AC Newman episode I caught live when it taped in New York. Really good stuff. That dude is just interesting no matter what he's doing. Such a good series. Today's talk was recorded by Charles Mueller and co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi. Shout out, Mark. So you might be wondering what Will and AC were talking about at the end there. Well, guess what? As a special treat, Will played some new songs from In the Rainbow Rain. We chose one of our favorites for you, which he performed walking through the crowd. This is Don't Move Back to L.A. by Ockerville River. Take it away. Just mine. 
send this out to Susan Sneeze I'm gonna say a 30 rosaries I'm gonna tell her don't move back to L.A. Don't get your license back Don't cut your intake back, don't move back to L.A. Drop this drag And you can have your New York City back Well I'll send this out to Space Camp Chip <laughs> So I'm living on the ocean's level And I will send this to Aloha Chris might not agree, but I'll insist, and I'll tell them don't move back to L.A.